Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TST Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and on today's episode, we're bringing you the latest instalment of our Innovators on Innovators series. This time, Jason Lopes, the Director of Additive Manufacturing at Gentle Giant Studios, is joined by Brian McLean, the Director of Rapid Prototype at Leica. Gentle Giant Studios is a leader in visual effects and modelling, while Leica is an Oscar-nominated feature film animation studio. Both companies have led the way in incorporating 3D printing technologies into their industries, with Lopes and McLean often drawing large crowds at industry conferences. Throughout this episode, the pair discuss their experiences using 3D printing in the movie industry, detailing the processes involved when making props and animated characters, and revealing how AM enhances the development of these parts. They also touch on their happy accidents when using the technology, and discuss how the work of the other has inspired them. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tstmagazine.com, where you can subscribe to the print edition of TST Magazine, and our weekly Additive Insight newsletter for free. Jason, it's it's pretty cool to be able to uh, get to chat with you in this form. I've uh, heard your name for close to a decade and a half, and I've always been looking forward to meeting you. And it was pretty cool to be able to meet you a few years ago. Um, but I remember, uh, whether it was Rapid or AMUG, uh, hearing your name, and you were kind of famous in the 3D printing world, and especially in the film industry. And I wanted to meet you after one of your keynotes. Uh, and I went up to you, and you just were surrounded and mobbed by people. I don't know if they were asking for autographs or they just wanted to ask you <laughs> questions. Uh, and I thought, oh man, I'm I'm never going to get to wait through this line. So maybe next year, maybe next year. So it's been pretty cool to get to meet you at some of these conferences and get to become your friend and hear all the cool projects you're working on. So. Well, well, first, thank you for that. And it's really an honor to be here and just chat with you. Uh, a little something that you're not aware of. My first ever C-graph with 3D printing, I snuck a chair into the back of a big presentation slash keynote because I was seeking out and searching for you. And you were on stage, I believe that was Coraline time, speaking about the puppets of Coraline. And the reason why I was seeking you out was because, and I never wanted to just drop an email or anything like that. I wanted to meet you naturally, was because I was searching for like-minded people in what I was doing. In entertainment, there's a lot of people that, that have been 3D printing, but there's few that rely on it as the main artery in a production timeline. And when that's your main tool, and it's part of the process. It's a little different than just printing a prop here and printing something there. I had saw what you were up to and I got that chair and I sat in the back of that room. I think it was object still back in the day. It was in New Orleans. Yes, it was. Yep. yep. And I just sat there in awe. And I said, finally, somebody that is on the same plane as me and understands things a little differently as far as this big responsibility in a whole workflow. And similar to what you said, I didn't get to talk to you that day because you had a mob of people around you and everyone coming <laughs> I had no up idea. And, take, we and taking pictures. Yeah, I was sitting in the back with Neil Rainey. I believe he was at Object at the time, and now yeah. he was he left there to go to Bose. Uh, but yeah, so I was searching you out. So it's really cool to be able to just have a nice conversation with you. 
Yeah, that's so funny. We were we were sort of ships in the night for many years trying to meet each other. So it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said about how we use three D printing in such a unique way. You know, it is our our final product. We're not using it in the prototyping space. Um, everything about the material and the way it looks is what ends up on camera. So that exactly. you know, totally focus you in a, in a different realm. Uh, and I think it really has has pushed the um, 3D printing industry into a whole new era, arena as well. Just having people like us try and, and the teams we get to work alongside constantly pushing the limits of what these machines can do. Exactly. And, you know, even more entrenched in a workflow like yours and, and mine over the past 20 years is that responsibility, right? We work with traditionalists. We work with artisans that have been doing this for decades. And bringing in technology tool is not the easiest thing to do. And then all eyes are on the tool and, and yourself. And, you know, if that printer, if something ever goes wrong or the print goes wrong, it holds up. Uh, it holds up the schedule for what's going on, and mm -hmm. you have to be so dynamic and shift around it. And uh, it leads me to, like, I'll never forget when I came to visit you at the facility, and you gave me that wonderful tour and, and seeing everything, and it's just, you know, awe-inspiring. But the solutions. I'll never forget seeing your area where you clean polyjet parts and the ergonomics that went into it to adjust and be comfortable for people cleaning parts, yeah. et cetera. And, and my eyes just lit up and, you know, it, it's just so cool to see someone that innovates on top of innovation and, and really honing it together. And one thing I've always wanted to ask you is, how has the adoption been from from early on? I, I, I guess really was Coraline the, the first film to really rely on the tool and how was it accepted when, when you started showing? Uh, so we I feel really fortunate because Coraline was the first film that we tried this on and I uh, had a partner at the time, Martin Minier, who Martin was, um, he's also famous in sort of the uh, model making and film industry. And I had known Martin in San Francisco. And uh, I was working at a college called California College of Arts and Crafts. And they were the first college west of the Mississippi to get one of these 3D printers. And they got a object uh, 333 at the time. And I knew nothing about 3D printing. Um, I was a model maker and a sculptor. And I was my job to teach the uh, industrial design students and the architect students um, how to use the 3D printer. So I was basically one uh, chapter ahead of them in the instructional manual, trying to teach myself how to use it, teach myself how to use the 3D printing software and get things ready for the 3D printer. And once I started recognizing how it worked uh, and became comfortable with it, I reached out to Martin and I said, hey, this Martin, you gotta come check this out. This is gonna revolutionize how we've been doing model making by hand or carving things out of foam or molding and casting. And he took one look at the machine and he said, hey, do you, do you think we could do replacement animated faces with this? I know of a company up in Portland, Oregon Henry Selleck's project, it's called Coraline, you know, I'm involved with it. They kind of brought me on as a consultant. Uh, and we looked at each other and we said, yes, absolutely. We can, this will work, we can do this. And we started doing tests uh, where we were 3D printing parts on this printer. 
we were reimbursing the school for the resin in the time. And then we were sending the parts. Martin would carry them up to uh, fly up to Portland and show Henry. And Henry and Travis Knight, they both really, from the earliest stages, bought into this idea. And Henry, with his experience in stop motion and being one of the world-renowned you know, stop motion directors, he was adamant that this was the wave of the future and this was how it needed to happen. And it was his buy-in, it was his commitment to it uh, that really was the wing beneath it. We had so much um, clout and trust with the, this fledgling studio to just run with this idea. And we told the producers we need three people, one machine and $30,000 and we could make all of Coraline for them. We weren't trying to be dishonest, but honestly at the time, we were only, you know, we were looking at it as we had to make one character, Coraline, and we had to make replacement faces for Coraline. And what was the highest, most successful replacement animated character to date? And that was Jack Skellington from Nightmare Before Christmas. And he had 800 replacement faces. So that Amazing. was our goal was how do we make, maybe we make a thousand. Let's do a thousand faces and we'll surpass Jack Skellington. So that was kind of our target. And that was what, why we thought three people and one printer. But basically what, what Henry and Travis allowed us to do is um, go into the studio, set up shop, shut the doors. And for almost nine months, we didn't have to produce results. We had, we had this protected time where uh, we just were iterating. We we're just trying to figure it out. And I, I, it took me a, a while to look back on that and realize how special that was and how unique that was. That's very because special. Because if, if we had a nosy producer or we had somebody, you know, getting nervous about the pr uh, production schedule, that would have crumbled within under its own weight within a few months. Because we, it was not working. We had so many things to figure out. Um, but at the end of this nine months, we presented this small little proof of concept test. Travis animated it. And after that, we came out, I never forget coming out of a meeting where suddenly Henry's like, I want this character, this character, this character. And we had, you know, we had 10 times as much work to do after that meeting because he was so impressed with what, what it was capable of. That's absolutely amazing. And uh, as, as you're telling me this story, I'm, I'm thinking back to the origin of how did it really become adopted where I was at Stan Winston at the time? You know, back on the Jurassic Parks, you know, long time ago, they dabbled here and there. They would send something out to get rapid prototyped for something for the, you know, mechanical engineering department or something like that. Maybe one part of film, if that. And I'll never forget being at Stan's. Uh, and this is this is where I sound old. Uh, this is about 2000, 2006, 2007. Uh, we had a digital department that was separate from the rest of Stan Winston. So our digital department, I like to use the analogy, we were animating Garfield the movie and the rest of Stan Winston were building effects for some of the biggest blockbusters. And Stan immediately recognized like th this doesn't make sense. And we would talk and I would say, yeah, it should be a, the digital department should be a tool feeding into the rest for the bigger picture. And uh, and just as luck would have it, uh, a little unknown director walked in with, with a commercial for Halo Diorama uh, way back in the day when it was still under Bungie. And the only way to do this would be on a on, on this timeline would be with 3D printing using traditional sculpting it just wasn't going to happen. 
So we, we figured out quickly, we can talk to the digital artists that are making the video game, get that low res data, bring it in, retopologize it, pose it, and then figure out how to get it back out of the computer. So rudimentary. And I'll never forget researching and, oh, there's a little company up here called Solid Concepts, which later was purchased by Stratasys and is now Stratasys Direct. But we can send that data to them. And just like an easy bake oven, out will come this, this figure. Okay, great. That's what we're going to do. And that's how we move forward. And I'll never forget getting a call. I think the gentleman's name, the project engineer at Solid Concepts was Todd Mueller, literally called me up after I sent him data saying, do you know what you're doing? And I was just like, no. <laughs> And I was like, why? What's wrong? He's just like, this, the, the size of the data that you're sending me, I would need like IBM's Big Blue to process this. Why don't you take a road trip up here and we can sit down and talk? And I went up there for three hours with Todd, and then it just took off from there. Uh, and we delivered that project. It was a Polyjet project. But as we were wrapping that project, as luck would have it again, in walks Favreau for the first Marvel Studios feature oh, film. Cool. And uh, I want to make a real Iron Man and not a party city suit. I want to make a real deal Iron Man. And learning how to go from small figurine, like action figure type size to now full one-to-one -one size, worked with Todd again to understand the differences. And we did it. Uh, we didn't know what watertight was back in the day. We were running a program called XSI, Soft Image XSI. Yeah. It's not even in existence anymore. Uh, we had no 3D printing rapid prototyping software. So when it came time to make a watertight mesh, we were taking advantage of our, our digital peers that were actually writing tools for us, Perl scripts and things like that, to try to figure out how can we make it watertight and do this. And we hack things together. We had zero 3D printing software. We had yeah. no magics. It, it was years. Do you guys we use able. magic a lot? So when when legacy came about, we immediately brought in magics because we, we, we thought like, I need to take the utilitarian work out of my artists. Yes, they were helping us create these these closed meshes. But that was taking hours of processing with the tools that we were making. So we, we researched and brought in Materialize to do that. And uh, Ben Arnold and, and, and another gentleman, I think his name was John Moss, came in and sat down with us and showed us how to get up and running. And then soon after that, we took a trip out to Plymouth, Michigan, and I was trained. I think it was Magix 4, something like that. And uh, I sat with Evan Kirby, who still leads all the training. And those tools that I learned then are the tools that I use today at my current, what I'm currently doing. Wow. So it's yeah. pretty amazing. Um, it's interesting because we, my, my experience with magics was back at the college, California College of Arts and Crafts. And I remember it being really demoralizing for, for students that we would have these guidelines of how they should model. Um, and they would follow the guidelines to the T and they thought they had created this watertight mesh and you'd pump it through magics and it would kick back 17,000 errors. And these poor students were like, what did I do? I can't. So magics was this barrier. It was this thing that, that you had to, you had to pass your file through magics and um, at a click of a button, magics would solve all the problems. Uh, yep. So funnily, uh, ironically enough, when we were going into, um, pitching this idea to Leica, we did not have the budget for magics. 
So we kind of said, ah, oh, no, we're, we, let's see if we can create files without going through magics. And we, Rob Ducey, who's a technical director at Leica, who's been there, you know, since 2005 when we were starting all this stuff and has been instrumental in so much of our advancements with 3D printing. He went online and found an STL exporter that was on uh, from Carnegie Mellon and we uh, ported it over to Maya. But for we have never used Magix since my time at Leica since 2006. We've never used Magix. And if you were to take any one of our files and send it through Magix, I guarantee you, you would get thousands of errors <laughs> saying it's, oh. it's you cannot print it. Of course. And it's so cool having this talk about about, about magic. So two different approaches, right? Like it was demoralizing for, for you all. For us and what I saw, I realized that the at the time, the, the transitioning from that digital department to now a, a support department, part of the big picture, a digital artist didn't have the tools traditionally to understand how to make a proper model. So Mm -hmm. Alan Scott, who is one of the partners of Legacy Effects, we instantly realized that who can we bring from the traditional model shop up into our digital room and figuring, well, if I have a digital artist, they're going to model something on a computer, most likely for visual effects, where as long as we see the front on screen, if we look around the corner, we're not going to see yeah. the back and it doesn't matter. So why don't we bring people up that know how to make models traditionally, see if they're interested and can train in this new way of modeling? Because now we can teach people how to build a proper digital model that can be used, one, as a visual effects asset for absolutely anything, and two, to get out of the machine and get tangible in your hands and build proper modeling. And that was our approach to it. Uh, and I can see how it could be demoralizing, you know, seeing yeah. those tons of errors, you know, even now when I see it come up. However, my approach was we need to really get back and understand that even though this is technology and it does fabulous things, we're going to drive it in a way where that plugin is invented because we did it with our hands first and we were going to do mm-hmm. it no differently with printing. So pretty wild. The, um yeah, it's it's cool. We ended up. Uh, it's funny looking back on it. If we if we had used Magix, we would have not discovered this. There was an error in the software uh, of both Stratasys machines as well as 3D Systems machines, and that error would if you had a a, a model and you intersected another model. Uh, so you had, let's say you had two spheres and you intersected those spheres. And one of those spheres, you reverse the normals. You basically turn the shell inside out and you were to send both of those parts to the uh, export them together and send them both to the 3D printer. If you had sent it through Magix, it would have corrected the inverted normal object uh, and you would have gotten two spheres that were together. But when you bypass Magix and you send it straight to the software, the software looked at that as basically a Boolean and it would you got it. Chop out um, the intersecting circle with the other circle. And that became, we, we called that the machine Boolean. And that became such an instrumental part for us for Coraline all the way through um, pretty much Kubo and the two strings. Because for our workflow, we have to animate the exterior surface of the face 
but the behind the face is this registration system. And we call it a system because it's basically a series of planes and cubes and very simple rudimentary hard surface geometry. But that that modeling, that engineering of the registration is what allows the faces to plug onto a head into the exact same spot. So back on Coraline, we used to have to get the registration all figured out and tested before we could rig the exterior of the face because we couldn't change point order, we couldn't move things around. So we were forced into doing all of this practical work and proving things out before we could get into any of the animation. And so it made this very linear process where it took us months and months and months. And then starting, it was, it was actually Martin discovered the, um, this error that ended up becoming a huge advantage for us. So on future projects, we would end up being able to model the registration, model a head as a solid head that we would animate and rig, and then we would and combine the registration, send them together so we could have these two parallel workflows. Uh, and I remember when we started getting into conversations with both 3D Systems and Stratasys, we told them about this error and their software and like, oh my gosh, I'm, we're so sorry, we'll fix it. We're like, no, please <laughs> no, do not it. fix it. Leave it. <laughs> it's so part of our workflow would, now. <laughs> every time they would release a new version, we'd like, did you guys fix it? And they're like, no, we haven't fixed it yet. Okay, please don't. So it ended, awesome. up, it ended up becoming something that was amazing for us. And this nowadays, computers have gotten so much more uh, powerful that you can do a software Boolean with really dense geometry. Yes. But back then you couldn't, you know, it, it would uh, fail almost immediately. And that we would take really dense scan data and we could take dense scan data and just start chopping it up and basically creating uh, really ornate parts and pieces that would fit together just through Booleans or just through this reverse inverse normal thing. That, that's amazing, those discoveries. Uh, you know, this is almost embarrassing to say, but I, I think if anyone listening to this and, and doesn't come from entertainment, the software that, that Brian and I use, that we use, is is completely different than engineering software, like using Maya. Like you heard me, I said Softimage XSI. Uh, you, you, you name it, what it max, whatever it may be. <clears throat> For me, we were a default Maya house to start mm -hmm. and XSI. There's no real world scale by default in those programs, especially years ago. Uh, you bring thing in, it's units, right? I mean, we work in yep. units because that software is not used to go into the physical world. So just getting my digital artists, open up your preferences. We need to set to an inch or centimeter setting because there was everything defaulted to meters. And when you did an install of this software, you never went looking there because you never had to. Yeah, so exactly. We, we'd have people, uh, artists like, oh, check out what I did. This is going to be awesome, blah, blah, blah. OK, what scale are you at? Oh, well, yeah, we could just rescale it at the end. Well, you know as well as I know, <laughs> scaling down or scaling up does not. You can't just do it. Sometimes you have to go in and remodel areas, especially if you have to scale down. So it was a steep, steep learning curve. And, and those failures actually cut into it. And that's, you know, all eyes are on the technology in this workflow. Maybe this is not going to work for us because we're used to just being able to do things. Uh, but it, it caught on and it was absolutely amazing. And 
Speaking to the processing, I remember on Project 880, I still have the code word in my, my uh, head, Project 880 was the 880th project in James Cameron's database, which was Avatar. And just getting out all of the data for the vehicles, we worked on the amp suit and all the Navi, the uh, blue creatures uh, for that movie and a couple other things, but- Is this Avatar the focus one? Yes, first avatar. Yeah, okay. And just breaking out and extrapolating the data for like the amp suit to figure out what are we gonna mill and foam? What can we 3D print, et cetera, uh, to help even like the bolts and things like that. We had to go out and purchase new machines. There was just no way to get this data out of, of its mm. program. And then secondly, be able to take that data once you had it isolated and have it sent to a machine like the 333 or we my my first foray was a 260v uh which was a smaller platform but mm -hmm. we we knew what we were using it for but remember the back planes of those printers was also like windows 2000 windows xp they had a four gig limit because they weren't 64 bit uh, like at least close to a gigs being used just for the operating system so extremely challenging whereas today's world of a workstation and a printer you don't have that obstacle really anymore really anymore and yeah. I, I look to the advancements now i mean brian you and i we've been printing for a long time in this workflow and you know we, we're always looking for new things right and and what is the next new thing? What's going to help us? It's sometimes it's funny, right? This looking back at what the challenge was, where it's not even existent anymore. The thing that I think is so, you know, there's definitely been a, and we were probably in the infancy of of the model making side of 3D printing, where you really were taking people who were used to working with their hands and used to working practically, and using the 3D printer as a tool to create models, that's essentially what, you know, models and props. Uh, and we came to it with this real world understanding about tolerances and offsets. And if you're gonna fit two pieces together, they can't share the same surface. They have to be some air gap between them. And just sort of hammering at it from the practical side. But we're in, a, we're in an interesting point now where there is this amazing VFX software that exists where you can do point cloud rendering and you can create these amazing complex shapes and try to find a way to voxelize them and turn them into a three-dimensional voxelized model. But there isn't a lot of people doing that. There isn't a lot of people who understand that there are these software, including within the 3D printing world. Like I think they're used to um, still creating shelled models and um, not recognizing the power of how you can truly voxelize something and take advantage of every single tiny little droplet of different materials or different colors. And that's what is exciting. So in my path of doing this workflow that we were just talking about, you know, there becomes a time where it gets a little, I don't want to use the word mundane, but it turns turnkey to a degree. And for me, it was almost like every all the suits kind of started looking similar. The work was pretty much turnkey. Everyone was understanding it. So now my dopamine drops and I'm like, well, what's mm -hmm. next for me? Like, how can I ignite back into what I had already started? And it's like plateauing now. And then seeing your color work. 
And I had worked with Object in Israel uh, along with Ryan Larson about uh, how can we get some primary colors going into multi-shelled like you were talking about and even printing on, I remember 2010, printing directly on fabric for a commercial uh, and and Object at the time saying, oh, there's no market for that, that's niche and hello, J850. Uh, but really what, what was next for me? And then I, and I heard you speaking about color and how you were getting into it and the results and seeing the result difference. I don't think people realize this and I don't know this for a fact. This is my observation of watching you and your company is there's an evolution of the color over the films. Yes. Where it starts getting more advanced from Coraline up through up through the latest and really having an appreciation for, oh, they're ahead of the curve. They're working directly with OEMs to understand and getting access to things. But more importantly, you see that transition of more complexity and color. So it inspires me to start dabbling into color some more and not from a shell based way of even color with multiple materials down to the voxel level, like you said, but then I learned something. And it was one one of the AMUGs that you attended, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, at the networking lunch, mm-hmm. you sat with a gentleman or two, right? We don't know each other at those networking lunch, and it was Cuttlefish. And and yes. that allowed, and you met the, the people from Cuttlefish, would allowed you to explore color in a different way than the OEM was releasing it. That is and, that is true. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that was a go ahead. Uh, did that, giving you that access now to go deeper and have more control and solve more of the how can we for Leica? Yeah, that was so we and it's been it's funny to look back on it and see how much of uh, so much of our our success or pushing the limits of what printers can do is is the trust that we have built with Stratasys. And Stratasys is a, we have a wonderful relationship with them. And over the years, they have slowly, begrudgingly in the beginning, <laughs> uh, but uh, but slowly given us more access um, to how parts are sent to the printer. And that this really started on, you know, Coraline, we didn't do color printing. We use object machines or Stratasys machines. Coraline, all the characters were hand painted. Um, we then shifted to color on Paranorman, Box Trolls, and uh, beginning of Kubo with powder-based printing. And that was the only color printing on the market. You, those were the 3D systems. Uh, powder, the material was cheap. You could get decent color, uh, but it you know, wasn't great for dimensional accuracy or repeatability because of the whole powder and binder scenario. But it worked that you could with sheer volume, you'd send 100 parts, maybe 60 of them would look good. And we were able to, uh, that was our bread and butter. That was our backbone technology for many years. And then it was on Kubo and the two strings where there was a couple character designs that were much crisper and hard surface. And they had these fine details that the powder printing wouldn't have really been able to achieve. So I reached out to Stratasys and said, hey, what do you guys have? Are you guys working on any color? And they're like, well, we have this Connex 3, but you guys wouldn't be interested. <laughs> and I said, well, why wouldn't we be interested? Well, the Connex 3, it's only, it's three colors and it's shell assignment. It's kind of like paint by numbers and you can pick 56, I forget the number, 46 different colors yes. put in three and you can mix them. And we said, well, no, maybe we'd be interested. So we started testing the machine and we, 
we ended up um, getting in contact with a guy named Chris Williams from Virginia Tech. And yep. I'm sure you know Dr. Chris Williams. And he had some knowledge of uh, early voxel printing. And um, he, we met a guy named Nick Meisel, who was a PhD student at Virginia Tech. And uh, Nick was super interested in the film industry and wanted to come out as an internship. So we arranged this sort of internship that Nick spent a couple months with us out at uh, Leica. And he essentially wrote this lookup table to be able to take the input of these three colors and expand it to 256 colors. And uh, we got in contact with a guy named John Hiller who had created this AMF tool, which essentially allowed you to independently slice a model and assign different colors to that model. But the problem was you could have these slices, but there was no way to feed them into the machine without um, Stratasys giving you the ability to do it. And what that ability was, was this little USB dongle that you would plug into the yep. back of the machine. Yep. <laughs> and those were, those were so hard to get. Uh, I forget, what were they called? I forgot. Like uh, oh, uh, or something? It, yeah, it's it's the licensing uh thing yeah. in it. I forget the name of it. <laughs> those like there was they even Stratasyst, I remember didn't have one. We wanted one time our machine broke down and we needed to print some parts in the middle of production and they said we can't because we don't have the voxel dongle. We have to and Israel doesn't have any more. I was like, How, <laughs> what do you mean? It's just a, can we just copy the USB and send it to you? But so uh it was after it was after Kubo that we were at AMUG and we were giving a presentation about how we were able to write our own software using this AMF tool for with three colors. And it was, you're right, we sat down and Rob Ducey sat down and happened to be at a table with somebody from Cuttlefish. And Cuttlefish had been doing the same thing with a uh, Connex 3, but they had been turning it into a four color printer by dyeing the support material. Bingo. Yeah. And so they essentially were years ahead of what Stratasys was uh, focusing on. And they were doing a real scientific deep dive into color and how, you know, when you're dealing with three dimensional objects that are printed in color and you have color, not just on the exterior surface, but you know, certain crazy. depth into it. The color is affected by the shape, the size, the whether it's a cube or a sphere, they're going to have slightly different dithering patterns to create and mix those, not mix the colors, but um, dither the colors. Uh, so Cuttlefish, is, they were amazing. Uh, we ended up working with them and again, getting Stratasys uh, gave us the ability to give us one of these voxel dongles and then cuttlefish would do all of our slicing for us. And now that's something you can get that's back on missing link. We were the only place in the world that had the capabilities of that because of our, you know, we were getting software from cuttlefish and hardware, the J750 from Stratasys. But uh, you can now buy like a cuttlefish add-on. Right? I believe you can. Yep. And once again, just showing how of how entertainment opens the doors to give people accessibility to things that were tried on before they were released. It, it's it's really awesome, and and that's the but that's so, what. 
I was just going to say, maybe it, maybe it's entertainment. I think that uh, Stratasys, I remember, when because we, we have a connection with Nike. Of course. At Leica. We, uh, we are owned by uh, the Knight family, which is founders of, uh, of Nike. And I remember Stratasys would say, All right, we'll give you guys access. We'll give you these voxel dongles. You guys can do this, but don't tell Nike like we don't want <laughs> and maybe it was just the fear of Nike you know being such a machine and having uh, a different use of 3D printing that they felt Correct. like we were we were the playground we they, they didn't care if we were messing around in the sandbox but we don't want other clients to know because we're not ready to support this Correct. And I and I think, you know, that that nails it in in entertainment and with a person like you with a person like me once we get access we we approach it on our own. We go under the hood. Just give me the open the door for me, and I'll take care of it. And I'll figure. I'll try to figure it out. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, great. Build that bible of understanding. <clears throat> That's how I was able to get in and print on fabric in 2010, and actually use it in a direct TV commercial where people had cool. piston robot arms, and you could they, we just green screen erased out the green sock that it was printed on 3D pistons. And really taking things to the next level. And my, my history is, you know, I graduated college, art school with, I went to school for film. I was making skate videos before I went and getting into editing After Effects and things like that. And then it progressed into building render farms, like thousand mm -hmm. processor clusters to render out three-dimensional images and composite layers of film. And I quickly realized that, uh, I was working on uh, on a weekend and it was truth advertising. If you remember those truth anti-smoking commercials back in the day and a high-end visual effects artist, I hear him screaming from his room. He was on a discreet inferno. <laughs> that was the name of the system. And I went into Steve and I said, what's wrong? And he goes, the machine crashed again. We can't do any of this work. We're down for the day. And it was at that moment that I realized, uh, my new career is going to be a bridge between technical and art because they they both intersect and if one goes down we have no product if the technicality gets in the way then there's no artistry and vice versa so how can i be that bridge and enable and i took all of those workflow skills and when we got that first 3d printer in house my focus wasn't even on the 3d printer my focus was how can i now develop this pipeline that feeds it differently to make it more efficient for artists. How can I get people understanding how to take scan data, scan data and now retopologize it in a way that we can build this digital asset library to go out to the printer or any technology if needed and never look back? And then, as you mentioned, the Connex 3. Uh, I refer to it as if you wanted to go back in time and get the Andre Agassi colors or Buzz Lightyear colors, the Connex 3 was perfect for you if you were using yeah. it at default, because that was the whole like 80s vibe of colors with that limited palette. But then I saw what you were <laughs> up to and I was just like, wait a second, something's going on here because you can't do that at default. Yeah, uh, well, it's funny because... Um... Angela Novak uh, was recommended by Nike to because she was trying to apply to Nike and they couldn't hire her. And she had worked with you uh, and you recommended her. And she came in and I remember Angela was she kind of came in. She said, oh, yeah, I, 
they're doing color at Legacy and, you know, it's similar. And uh, then we started showing her what we were doing. She's like, oh, no, this isn't the same. You guys, <laughs> Jason would really love this. I was like, no, you can't tell Jason. We will get in trouble. Like, please don't tell him. I really wanted her to because I wanted you to know. But I was like, no, no, we can't. We'll get in trouble. Oh. It's it's so cool seeing that. Yeah, Angela, she came on board. She was in the traditional model shop and she wanted to learn new skills. And it was great because, you know, having having her and being able to really push the limits in polyjet world with I, I always called it pushing minimums. How can we go thinner? How can because in polyjet, right, you can print it. The hard part's cleaning yeah. it. And, and keeping it from warping. And she was my my Clyde. I was Bonnie. And and we would push it and she would find a way to clean it and, and make sure it held its integrity. And we did some amazing. If, if you see the movie Night at the Museum, I think it's Night at the Museum three. Uh, there's these gold pharaoh pieces of these yep. crowns that that the uh, person's wearing, the queen's wearing, whatever her character is. That is probably 300 polyjet pieces at pushing below minimums of what they say you can print and gold plated. It is absolutely phenomenal that's work, so cool. but, but that's enabled by a tag team duo with me and Angela and really understanding it. And I use this analogy all the time and it's funny, you come full circle. When people ask me all the time, oh, what do I need to do to become successful in 3D printing? I say, you need to own your equipment. You need to learn that equipment, like the back of your hand, and time bend with it you become a wizard or a sorcerer with the equipment because then you go back to your teams and say this is what i can do pop it right on the thing and let their brains meld on that for a little bit and they will now be inspired to try things to feed you and you can create this synergy and do what even the oems say is nearly impossible I mean, Brian, I mean, I'll say this. The last time me and you, we, we had a, a quick Zoom call to catch up after I started here at Channel Giant again. And I showed you what I was up to going from mm-hmm. scan, color scan, utilizing AI to color output. And inspired by all your work over those years. It, and and I think you would say what you saw was pretty amazing. That's awesome. It's super. And we want to, we're very interested. And I still have to come down there and. Do a tour. We're going to go. And both I got to see. Yeah, uh, yeah. I would love to do that because that is that's, you know, that is the missing. There's a few missing links right now, and um, in 3D printing, especially color missing links. Printing. Missing link. Yeah, there's a plug. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of them is color correction. What you see on the screen versus what you get on the printer. That's still kind of uh, got Correct. a lot of work to do. But being able to capture color in a scan. Um, and then reproduce that accurately, and it seemed like you guys are really onto something. That's pretty exciting. I so just I'm delivered ex- something for Kid Cudi, and I'll show you this offline the next time we meet. Uh, that is absolutely unreal. And and I say this, and and, and please tell me if if you agree. The OEMs will show us, and I and I have a great relationship with Stratasys. They helped me launch my career, Object and Stratasys, and everyone there is absolutely amazing. But they, they'll show me a, a color print, and they're proud of it. And it's awesome. Technically, it's awesome. But for our world, that is not enough. So my color printing now, we're, we're finding ways of using ur- urethane matte spraying on mm-hmm. top of that color 
to actually take down that sheen to actually fill in a lot of the peaks and valleys that come right because we're we have a lot of forced orientations right there's not we can't due to the size of some of our things optimally orientate so then we're dealt with you know peaks and valleys etc so we've developed this this matte spray that goes over and punches the color to more of a natural tone and i i, I hope that stratasys and the oems really look to what we're doing downstream to help to try to figure out upstream what can be done in a technical advance for getting color even better because I, I believe in this workflow big time ever since i've seen what you've been up to i knew it was going to catch and then once i started dabbling here at gentle giant with that capture to print it, it's i think the possibilities are limitless yeah you, you know it, it does take a commitment to it, it and i think you nailed it with you know, having access or owning a machine is so important because you have to be able to iterate and fail and take right. chances and try stuff because there's so many happy accidents that we have had over the years <laughs> where if we were having to send something to a service bureau, you know, we would be holding it so close to our chest and only send it out when we think it's perfect. Uh, but, you know, when we hire new modelers, we hire people that are coming on to the rapid prototyping department. A lot of times they've had some experience with 3D printing, but they've only had experience with, you know, using one of these service bureaus. So our, our uh, instructions to them are we want you every day, we want you, end of the day, we want you to send whatever you're working on to print. Whether it's halfway done, you just started it, because we want to start that connection between what you're seeing and what you're holding in your hand and you're going to discover things. Um, and that's been so, so helpful with just getting people used to this tool because it is, it's a, it, it is weird what you see uh, or what you expect is sometimes going to not come back anything like it. Correct. The yeah. So, so for me, learning soft proofing, I come from a lot lookup table background in film, so it applies nicely it's it's really exciting you want to hear something about a funny accident since you mentioned funny accidents mm -hmm. and, and failing upwards because that's what i speak about all the time to kids <laughs> the movie oblivion with tom cruise if you're familiar with he wears like this futuristic motor leather motorcycle jacket yeah. well his chest signatures and his shoulder his the, the pauldrons they're printed and those are printed actually on, on my 260V years upon years ago. And they were printed in a material called Tango Gray, if you remember Tango Gray. Yeah, yeah. Tango Gray is pretty floppy. And if you uh, back and forth like a living hinge too much, it's going to tear. So we were printing these in Tango Gray and handing them over to a 70-year-old Armenian seamstress that was sewing them into the motorcycle suit so you want to talk about goosebumps seeing this this 70 year old woman sewing your 3d printed part into a leather jacket is just phenomenal but everyone was complaining because when it was all said and done it was just too floppy of a look inside of it and while i was in the middle of iterating i was printing them like use face down uh to decrease the amount of support material during testing yeah. And I accidentally clicked the button, not realizing, and I enabled gloss mode on the interior yes. surface of that uh, U. By doing so, I now changed the durometer 
of that flex of that material. And I handed it over and they're like, why is this shiny on the one side? I'm like, oh, I made a mistake. I just clicked it. And they're like, no, that mistake that you made actually just That's brought awesome. this back into the world that we need. Print everything like this from now on for this project. That's cool. So, it's a great fail upwards. Yeah, that similar similar story. Uh, I very rarely, and there's a good reason for this, I very rarely actually run the machines. We we send so many parts through. We have a huge infrastructure. We've got an amazing team uh, of people who coordinate and organize. But way back when on, on the movie Paranorman, I was staying late and I was sending uh, some faces to print. And... Um, Norm, we had a whole range of expressions that normally when you send it to print the correct way, they would obviously all end up on the layered out on the grid uh, and printed sort of independently. But I failed to hit the button that says orient on tray. And I printed like 20 faces all in the exact same three-dimensional space. And hit print left and came back. And instead of 20 faces on the tray, there's only one. And what the hell? What's going on? But to clean it off and realize that these had all printed in the same spot, and you were able to get this amazing effect of a character animating, and you're That's seeing lips cool. and eyebrows. And we ended up using that on Paranorman to do some of the angry Aggie stuff. We were, we were doing motion blur or printing multiple faces, blurred faces, all because of this accident that we had that's amazing yeah that's really i could visualize it right now uh it reminds me of the stories back in the old sla days people laying shells of the same text inside of a model on top of each other to have the laser burn yeah. in a different color yeah pretty cool that's cool well the one thing i, I do want to say you know regarding you uh it was a year ago not this past rapid, the one before, we finally got to be on a panel together on stage. And and that was super awesome for me, as well as Christopher, I believe. Yes, Christopher and Casey were yeah. up there as well. But being up there with you was really cool. And I had so many people come up to me afterwards. It was like, seeing you and Brian up there, two of the oh, biggest pioneers cool. in the entertainment space. I just wanted to give kudos to you, man. I've always been a fan and, and you've pushed me to push myself even more. That means a lot because I feel the exact same way about you. Uh, you've been somebody who I've been excited to meet and now to hear you say that and say that you wanted to meet me was pretty amazing. So yeah, I held yeah, that keep one to my what heart for a long time. <laughs> yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, and I just, I, I love getting able to, getting together and being able to compare stories and we're doing so many similar things, uh, but little slightly different spaces. And I love being able to, inspire each other so absolutely you guys can't wait to see the scanning stuff you're coming up with and i do you know are you getting into doing any sort of uh digital anatomy printing have you guys played around with that at all yes so we're, we're taking advantage of a lot of things we're really betting on color uh and and even on my internal presentations your face and your work is all over it uh, but we're also embracing AI as well in a way that will help within our workflow and our future way of doing things. So, you know, one thing, maybe I'll tease the world out there. I wouldn't be surprised if I reach out to Brian in the next year or two to see if he wants to collaborate on an AMUG tech entry. 
uh, technical competition entry. I, I cool. think me and him could bring something really cool to the table. But until now, I'll leave everyone hanging on that. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah, there's so much exciting things. Materials, uh, being able to create your own. There's always been digital materials. Um, but, you know, through voxelization and the increase in the different durometers of material, being able to truly blend them and create your own. We've we've created this stuff that's super amazing that we refer to as RP clay. It's basically a 3D printed material that is animatable, that you can manipulate it and it'll hold its shape. That's it's a lot awesome. like, uh, you know, it's funny to spend so much time uh, and energy and money on printing something that basically is like plasticine or clay. But you can print it in color and it's got, we haven't quite found a use for it yet, but it's like now that we know that this can, this exists, yeah. we've got to find it. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking of it. things right away, like default bodies and faces out of ZBrush to give you that start structure and then you can go to town over it. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you before I forget, I've been going back and forth with emails with your, your wax specialist yes. for the past couple yes. of weeks and, and really answering a lot of questions on that side as we do a lot of MJP printing here. And we're trying to innovate even in that space of how do we go from final to in hand and reduce six hours. Do you, so do you guys do, uh, you have wax printing there? So we have an MJP, which basically all the support is encased in wax. Okay. So really trying to understand what's the best way that we can clean these and get them ready for any downstream process that will not have any inhibition as a result of the cleaning process. Yeah. Yeah, we um, we started because uh, our uh, this isn't a secret, but on the previous productions, we were using 3D printers for obvious, obviously a replacement animation, but we were using them for props and yep. set pieces and but we were also using them for puppet parts and a puppet part being like a hand where the printed hand with really fine details, creases in the knuckles and fingernails, we would have to print the part, primer it and sand it with magnifying glasses on and mold and then cast it into silicone. And we were looking for a pristine finish, but the amount of work that would go into that molding and cast, sanding, molding and casting to then realize you get wire in it or an armature in it and it doesn't move correctly or the creases needs to yeah. be, and then you'd have to do it all over again. So we had this idea of, well, is there a material that is higher resolution and may not survive uh, much, but is designed to be molded and cast? Like, yep. so wax was a perfect segue, or was perfect material into that. Uh, but what we failed to realize is how challenging it is to use the isopropanol to clean away the support material yes. without without affecting the surface of the wax yeah we we had really taken uh for granted polyjet how you could put a polyjet part in and you're blasting water and you could fall asleep and you could blast the you know, the part's not gonna if it's if it's not gonna break it's not gonna degrade because the water's not gonna eat it away but with the Isopropanol, there was a fine window of two or three minutes. If you left it in there too long, suddenly that alcohol started to slowly oh, eat yeah. away at the wax. But we, so we figured that out and uh, we have a system for that now. But it's amazing 
the wax uh, being able to mold and cast things into bronze or bronze aluminum. We we have this is such a uh, missing part of our workflow. We have machines, we have 3D printers, yep. uh, we have a huge machine shop, but machine shop is inundated with requests for just mass production. So the one-off things, the things that were yep. needed to be out of metal or something stronger, we kept trying to find 3D printing materials that were stronger or trying to use, leverage metal 3D printing, but it didn't have the detail or the the precision that we we're looking for. So this uh, wax to bronze, to bronze aluminum has been amazing. That's what we're involved in here. We do a lot of foundry work here, uh, a lot of jewelry type things as well. So marrying a, a present day technology with uh, <laughs> thousands of years ago process, <laughs> yes. it's it's super cool. And you know, it, yeah. this year's AMUG, there was a lot of like ca casting type of foundry uh, presentations and stuff, but until you get involved in it, it's a, it's a whole new level of goosebumps for me. It's almost like a, a similar passion work stream now as the color printing for me. There are new avenues, and you get to talk to artisans again, and you get to talk to people that have been doing it in a new way. And really, some of them are interesting to work with compared to others. And, and adapting new materials to try these things, but it's it's been really rewarding. And that's really cool to hear that you guys are playing in that as well. And there's something fun to think about uh, with silicone molding and casting with the wax. And we haven't, you'd need to be able to print in support material as your positive, but you, yes. could, you could essentially create open face molds, pour them, uh, melt out the, because isopropanol is fine with silicone, and you could essentially skip the the master and just go straight to one side mold and. You got it. Yeah. You absolutely so we we reached it. out to three D systems about that, and they they're less they are less willing to take chances with crazy ideas than Stratasys is. So. Uh, I will double down on that. And you know. The part that I, I wish it was different because they do have a lot of stable hardware to be able to play with. Uh, I'm a 3D systems backbone here at General Giant right now. We're bringing in more machines, uh, but it's very challenging to get under the hood and to try to do what we do. Yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. No, it, it's it. Yeah, it requires, and I think they maybe it just goes back to um, I can't quite decide. Uh, if it's the amount of money that Leica spends on Stratasys or 3D system material, or it's the or it's the things that we're doing, I don't quite know what moves the needle. Um, <clears throat> Probably a combination of both. Uh, this is a funny story. So I told you how about how Martin Minier, who was instrumental, is, is his idea to do 3D printing for replacement animation. Uh, he was so gung-ho he would never say no any idea any any he would yes we can do it we can do it well and he would figure it out after the fact so he was such a power in that realm we ended up being invited after Coraline we were invited to go to some user conference for object and it was down in San Diego yep and um because my name was the one that was on all the POs because I was signing all the POs, I show up at this conference 
and they give me this amazing suite. Because Stratton, Leica had just spent the most amount of money on polyjet material. We had surpassed Honda that was printing cars. So, and then Martin gets this dingy, not a dingy, it was a beautiful room, but it was a tiny little room. <laughs> not like he's, yours. So, <laughs> he's like, why did you get the amazing? I said, because they, they're, they're the, I'm the one who's been signing million dollar POs for material. <laughs> they don't know who you are. I love it. Uh, but that that material is what enables and that's what enabled me at Legacy was I was getting this material <clears throat> and everyone was winning. Legacy was winning. Object Stratasys was winning and I was learning. And that's huge. And when I started Gen at General Giant here, Carl, the founder, uh, this this will stay in my head forever. He, he said one thing to me, he goes, I just need you to know one thing when it comes to you being you in this lab. And I said, what's that? And he goes, the material is more valuable to me in solid form than it is in liquid form. It generates ideas. It inspires people. So if there's nothing going on, you have those machines going and you make them going on. Once again, we need it in physical form. That's how we get people motivated and doing work with us. So it's really enabling when you have people <clears throat> that give you that time that you had those months in that room to do your thing to constantly be printing and trying things. And and that's you, that's it for me. I love that. That's a great way to describe it. That's cool. Yeah. Have you guys been doing much um, rubber, agilis, color printing? So not on the Stratasys side. On the Nexus side, I've been doing a lot. Actually, I'm going to be telling a story. It's for Comic-Con, how uh, utilizing a fast machine and a rubber material enabled us within 24 hours to get a bigger <coughs> job for comic-con so stay cool. tuned on that that'll be out after comic-con sweet look forward yeah. to it this was awesome i had a great conversation Thanks. with you brian yes as always and uh we'll follow up and i'd love to come see what you're doing see some scanning <laughs> i probably will try to bring down a puppet or two to see if we can scan that it. would be great uh, i'd love to benchmark that for you and then you know my boys are at nike up there and i go up there every july so i'll come visit you as well Awesome. Sounds good.